0: Welcome to The Truth About Dragons. Today we are going to hear the view from the summit, if I'm up to it. Sigmund Koch points out that in psychiatry, unlike in a true science, the body of knowledge does not build. Instead, each new theory typically, this is a quote, typically disenfranchises the theoretical fictions of the past. This means that we do not yet know the first thing psychiatry and psychology know nothing they have established nothing everything they have postulated so far has turned out to be wrong the current theories are just the ones that haven't been disproven yet as far as we can tell based on past experience that freud was wrong that freud was wrong is not controversial within psychology itself any longer. Hasn't been for a long time. But a lot of Freud's mistaken assertions are still embedded in the humanities and in the popular culture. Alice Miller has also had a great deal of influence recently, including influence on current legislation. Jordan Peterson is doing well currently with the ideas of Carl Jung. You might find the ideas of Jung attractive, but they are based on nothing verifiable. Many still hold to the chemical imbalance concept, that is, that mental illness is due to a chemical imbalance in the brain. When examined, this is nonsensical. Many people these days have discarded religion, so they rely on their preferred psychology to form their worldview and explain themselves to themselves. They can hold to these dogmas with greater than religious fervor, because it's all they have. But they are based on nothing. They're like patent medicines, snake oil for the soul. Psychiatry and psychology cannot understand mental illness. The scientific model is fundamentally incapable of approaching the psyche. It is like trying to hammer a thought to the wall. The psyche is too complex and protean to devise a meaningful experiment with meaningful controls. Moreover, in the end, nobody can directly observe other than their own psyche. The clinical record is second- or third-hand anecdotal and cannot be independently verified. And there is an insurmountable observer paradox. The act of observation falsifies the data when you're dealing with observing people. Most critically of all, psychiatry and psychology, in seeking to mimic the objectivity of physical science, exclude all moral as well as metaphysical considerations. Yet nothing is more vital to the soul than the issue of right and wrong. Mental illness is a false analogy to physical illness. It is like speaking of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. There is no such thing as mental illness. Now we have better sources than psychiatry and psychology for understanding the psyche. In literature, crowdsourced sites like Quora or self-help groups like Alcoholics Anonymous or Adult Children of Alcoholics offer vastly larger and more reliable bodies of evidence than the established professional fields of psychology or psychiatry can possibly produce. Here we learn firsthand instead of second or third hand from those able to directly observe the psyche in mental illness, whatever that is, because it's in their own psyches. Most psychologists presumably can't, unless they're crazy, so to speak. And we have a vastly larger sample size than in any likely survey or clinical study. Thanks to the internet, it can be huge. But literature is an even better source. This is largely why we have myth and literature, to examine, understand, and treat psychological issues. That's what literature is all about. As they have been passed down through generations, such myths and stories come with even stronger empirical warrant than the crowdsourced groups we have currently. They have resonated with and seemingly, no, they have resonated with and seemed vitally important to many generations. Important enough to memorize, important important enough to teach all children. Next point, myth and literature are not expressions of the unconscious or expressions of the subconscious, but conscious wisdom on the psyche. Freud, Jung, Miller, and others have always used literary and mythical examples to support their psychological theories. It's inevitable because literature is the only available objective evidence on the contents of the human psyche. But Freud and Jung and psychologists generally, illegitimately, speak of it as if they were dealing with patients having hallucinations. This presumes that literature is beyond conscious control. But that obviously is not true. One is not unconscious when writing a story. And one is not unconscious when listening to one. It is also the wisdom of the ages, as well as of many recent surveys, scientific surveys, that major writers and artists are generally melancholics, what we would call depressives. They suffer from depression. This means they have both incentive to address the issue of depression and insight into it. And they are very, very intelligent people have to be to be able to write well. The metaphoric language of myth and poetry and the narrative form which you find in myth is the most effective language for speaking of interior states. It works through the use of what Eliot called objective correlatives. You can't describe mental states directly because you can't see them, you can't sense them and share them objectively. So you need an objective correlative to speak of them. That's what a story and narrative or a metaphor does. When asked what one of his poems meant, Eliot responded, quote, had I been able to say it any more plainly, I would have. A good writer or artist is expressing his psychic insights in the clearest way possible. trying to do psychology without using narrative and metaphor is like trying to do mathematics without using numerals then there's the test of prolonged popularity of entering a culture's literary canon this shows that the insights of a given tale or legend resonate with many psyches not just the artists It is the best empirical evidence for what is true about the psyche, which you could also refer to as the mind or the soul. Psyche, mind, soul. Same thing. Short, that is, of those elements of literature that have been elevated to religious significance. This is our very best evidence. These obviously are those that resonate most strongly. Through a study of hero legends, fairy tales and the like, we may then conclude the following. This is what they're telling us. First, depression and mental illness generally is not an individual problem, as a physical illness would be. It is a problem relationship and most often found in the context of a family. It is therefore not possible to deal with melancholia or depression, if you want to use that term, on a strictly individual level. Simply treating the individual's symptoms instead of addressing causes will probably make the problem worse. The symptoms are there for a reason. The relationship must be dealt with. And that we don't do with conventional psychology. Second point, the core issue is moral. Oh, I know that's scary, but it's true. This is completely missed by conventional psychology. In this diseased relationship, which generates what we call mental illness, in this decreased diseased relationship, someone has done wrong, moral wrong, and someone has been wronged. Morality is also inevitably of fundamental importance to the soul. To treat the soul without reference to right and wrong, which psychology and psychiatry always does, is malpractice. We need to speak in terms of virtue, vice, and justice to be able to understand any of this. Third point, the core issue is emotional betrayal. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is emerging as the most popular current explanation among psychologists for depression. The emerging consensus is that what we call mental illness is the result of prolonged childhood abuse. But the stories actually say something else. There need be no prolonged abuse, nor is there anything critical about physical abuse or sexual abuse, as present opinion seems to think. I'm not saying they're good, but they're not directly the cause of of mental illness. The issue is emotional betrayal, it is the Judas kiss. Fourth point. The most likely source of this emotional betrayal is a self-obsessed parent, what is commonly nowadays called a narcissist, if you prefer, a self-obsessed parent. Emotional betrayal can come from a spouse or lover, brother or sister, a close friend, an organization or a community one is identified with, or one's children. But parent is the most likely source. Their emotional influence and their opportunity is the greatest. The ultimate source will most probably be a parent who either rejected, abused, or tried to completely assimilate their child to themselves. Fifth point. Those most likely to experience such emotional betrayal are the best and brightest among us, as Allen Ginsberg told us. The smartest, best-looking, most talented, or most moral child is the one most likely to inspire envy, resentment, or a desire to own in a self-obsessed parent, or, for that matter, in others throughout life. Melancholics generally suffer from low self-esteem. That is one of the central problems, if not the central problem, in melancholia or depression. For healing, it is important to realize that this is the opposite of the truth. The depressed are the best among us. Sixth point, hero legends and fairy tales Trace a course of treatment for the melancholic or depressed. That is why they are quests. That's the goal. That's what they're questing for. They present a path. The melancholic is called upon to be a hero or heroine. Seventh point. By following this path, one has the genuine prospect of living happily ever after. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. This is Stephen Roney for The Truth About Dragons.